HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director at HRN. Before we get to this week's episode of Beer Sessions Radio, we wanted to update you on your host, Jimmy Carboni. Jimmy is currently recovering from two spinal surgeries due to a staph infection. He's in good spirits and being given great care at NYU Langone, but he has a long road to recovery ahead of him. If you'd like to show Jimmy some love and support, please consider contributing to his wellness fund at gofundme.com slash jimmywellnessfund. Jimmy is nothing if not a dedicated host, and he wanted to make sure we had a show for you this week. So we're bringing you an episode of On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio, part of a limited series that took Jimmy on the road in New York State to bring you stories of the best beer, ciders, and spirits. We hope you enjoy. Hey, 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 this is Beer Sessions Radio. For the past few months, we've been on the road in the Empire State. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I've been working with beer for over two decades. Most of my work is in my bar, Jimmy's Number 43, in the East Village, or in the studio at the Heritage Radio Network as the host of Beer Sessions Radio. In my time, I've seen major changes in the craft beverage industry. There's a big movement right now to know where your food comes from and to consume local artisanal products. When I buy kale at the farmer's market, it's easy for me to feel part of this movement. But every time I enjoy a cold beer, I don't always think about where the beer comes from. And since I live in a city of 8 million people, I forget that beer, cider, and spirits are all agricultural products. This is the last episode in the special series, On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio. In these radio specials, I took you out of the studio and into the fields, malting houses, breweries, and distilleries of some of New York's best craft beverage producers. I'm really glad that you've come along on this journey. In this final episode, we're taking you back to the roots in New York's Finger Lakes, The Finger Lakes region gets its name because of the long, skinny north-south lakes in the area. The lakes give the area a great climate for growing wine grapes, but it's also great for growing grain, and I was more interested in finding out about my favorite craft beverage, beer. And later, we'll hear from one of my favorite cider makers.
You know, we're on our fourth episode of On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio. We're up in the Finger Lakes region, and it really is a, a region. You know, we're in this town, Owego, and it's, it means, and the old Indian word was for where the valley widens. And, you know, we came through the, the Catskills, and after the Catskills, we're out here, you know, in this beautiful town, Owego. And we know that in the 19th century, the Finger Lakes enjoyed a boom times, and there were railroads and canals and things like that. And, and some, it seems like nothing's really changed here. This beautiful old Main Street that we were just at. And uh, our good friends, uh, you know, Natalie and, and Marty from uh, Farmhouse Brewery, our first stop. It's kind of like gateway to the Finger Lakes, stopping off on Owego. And uh, we're going to walk around the brewery and, and drink some beer with them. And they're one of the first uh, new malt facilities in New York, and, and they're really a, a farmhouse brewery. So we're going to have a great time with them. And, and here's uh, Natalie. I haven't seen you for a while. Nice to see you. Aren't they awesome? How I are you, buddy? You. And Marty's in there. Let's go in. Do you want to come in? Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Marty. Hey. How, How you doing, doing, man? Welcome, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, good. Thanks for coming up. How are you? It's like a cute little store here. You got some tables <laughs> held up by empty kegs, and you got your dog. <laughs> and uh, you, we're in the same building, what, next door to an ice cream place? Oh, it's the happy place. Yes. Yeah, we, we are kid and dog friendly as long as your kid and dog are friendly. It's... <laughs> Good way of it. I thought you had toys for your dog, but they're for kids. Um, no, those, that's Future Beer Lovers of America corner over there. <laughs> so why don't you th- tell, me, tell me about how you got started and what, what do you think is different about this region in terms of beer and yeah. grains from, from the rest of the state? Uh, when we started down this path, there were no other malt houses in New York State, and so the only option was for us to find our own base malt and malt it ourselves. Uh, so that, that's why we started the malt house. And the malt house actually got up and going uh, a little over a year before we had the brewery up and going. So for about a year and a half, yeah, for about a year and a half, we were selling grain to other breweries and distilleries around New York State. Uh, but as our brewery grew, we, we let the contracts that we had with other, uh, malt, uh, other breweries and distilleries kind of die off by attrition and then not re- renew those so we could focus on making malt for ourselves. So our grain so far has come from all over, uh, except for locally. We've been luckily we've been able to get hops, uh, mm-hmm. uh, both in, in, in Tioga County and, and just outside Tioga County, Broome County. Uh, we get a lot when of our you, hops from when you Willow. Say all over. You don't. You mean still in New York State? Still in New York oh, State. Yeah. Always, oh, just, no, always in New York State. Yeah. All our hops are grown. All the hops we use in all our beer, are all New York State, <clears> and all the base malt is all New York State. So we do like to do some dark beers, and no one's really making dark malts in New York State yet, uh, including us. So um, our, that's the missing percentage in our in our the so beer we make. It's a dangerous process. Yeah. Yeah, we were told early on when we started malting. We were told early on there's two different malt houses that make special malts, and those who who have had fires, and those who will have fires. <laughs> and we thought, you know, we'll let someone else mitigate that risk. <laughs> I grew up here, so I grew up uh, a few miles outside of Wego. Um, and we moved, Natalie and I bounced around the country for 25 years and decided we were going to move one more time, one last time. And uh, we found a farm in Berkshire, which is a you know, precalic little town north of here. And we have our, our pumpkins that we're going to be using, our pumpkin beer growing right there this year as well. We have beets. Uh, beets. We have a beet beer we we're making next week as well. Not only is our, our malt and our, our hops all locally grown, but we have... Uh, beer that uh, we pride in being Tioga. We have Tioga County ingredients in them as well, which is this one you're drinking right now is a tomato basil saison, which the tomato and basil are grown here in Tioga County. Sounds odd, but it works. It tastes good. I, I didn't. So it, it was slightly veg, vegetal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm always thinking about what we can use next. What what next can we, we make beer out of? We had a farmer bring over a Hubbard squash and put it on our table yesterday at the farmer's market. And uh, so I will we'll have a beer called Hubba Hubba. But I don't know what it's, how it's going to be. I don't know what we're going to make with uh, this Hubbard squash yet, but we'll make something with it. What's this next beer? That one is, that's Barn Burner. So we take local honey and make our own Belgian candy syrup with local honey right in our brew kettle. And then, uh, so it gets, the honey gets black and caramelized, and that's where you get kind of the, the raisin, molasses, uh, caramel notes come from that process. Um, I can taste the molasses. Let's, let's t- taste through these other beers. That one is Ain't a Dandy. And that's another, like, a traditional ingredient, wasn't it? Using dandelions for bitterness. Correct. Yep, yep. And, a land, yeah, and a land before hops. Uh, dandelion, dandelion root was used for bittering. And it's, let's do the next one, too, so we can just get... Yep. That's the, the cuke Skywalker. That's the cucumber goza. Yeah, and I can actually taste the cucumber. Mm-hmm. You're right, it doesn't taste like cooked vegetables. And yeah, I wondered about that fresh. technique. And that's, you're doing the same with, with so, dandelions and everything else, too. So we, it, it depends on what the ingredient is. So with uh, the tomato basil, we put the tomatoes in the mash, and we put the basil in the, in the fermenter. Uh, so, we, yeah, it depends on what it is, what flavors you want to get out of it, how warm you want to let the veggie get. Uh, depending on what flavors you pull out of it. So we, you know, some things are dry hops, some things are boiled, and some are mashed. This is one of the most interesting gozas. I love gozas. You know, last summer, Eric Asma of New York Times did a whole page on, so it was the goza, and uh, we've had a lot of fun with it, but this is a great beer. Uh, so you're coming back to your roots, too. So you're, you're, you're from this area. Yep. And I yep. said I was here when I was 16. It's the first time I've been back. I was here until I was 18, and then I, we, I never, yeah, I didn't come back until I was, I don't know, it was 25 years later, you do the math. <laughs> so. Are you involved in the grains at all? Are you, are you doing anything with the malting or... My job is to negotiate with the farmers. She's our farmer relations. So she gets it from the field to the to storage, and I get it from storage to the yeah. to the beer. <laughs> I uh, take the calls from the farmers, and I ask them to go over their lab reports with me, and we talk about the numbers, we talk about the statistics, we talk about quantity, we talk about price, and I'm the one who kind of negotiates what quality they have and then I asked Marty how much do you want you know um and last year we bought 30 and they buffered by how much we can afford buffered <laughs> our I bank want. account I want it all and how much can we afford <laughs> <laughs> our bank account uh we bought 30 30 tons last 30, year no, 30, no we bought 15 tons last 15 year 15 tons last year which is 30,000 pounds and that's that's a lot of malt and uh you're taking a huge um, gamble on the malt because the statistics don't tell you everything. Um, Marty has come to uh, learn how to finesse this particular barley because it's not behaving the way that it should be in the malt tank. Is that? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, we we. Every year when we start with using this year's crop, it's a learning curve in the malt tank and then a learning curve in the mash tun and, and trying to figure out how the malt wants to be treated. We were, at one, we were the first malt house in New York State since Prohibition, so people started calling us saying, can I come work with you for a couple of days and you'll teach me how to malt? And uh, 
anyone's ever trained anybody knows, you know, your first few days are very unproductive, but once someone's trained, then they can help out. But if you're always going through the training process, it just gets in the way. So we, we started having classes where we would invite everybody who called and said, can I come work with you for a couple of days to say, why don't you come and take this class? So we, we developed a, a nice two-day class. One of the monsters who they trained was Dennis Nessel. We visited Dennis and his wife, Jeanette, in the first episode of the series. His malting facility is called Hudson Valley Malt. They do floor malting. Is that what you do? Or you yeah, do different type that's of very romantic, you know? Um, no, I'm more controlling than that. Yeah, so we... You've got to be young and strong to yeah. do. Well, <laughs> you, do you have to turn the grain over regardless, but we, we have... Uh, you got to be like a different... you got to be like 20 years younger. I wish I was. The nice thing is we move it once. We dump it in, the, in there, yeah, it steeps, right. it germinates, and then we also kiln in the same location. With so floor malting, you're moving it multiple locations. Yep. I'm Ken Bauman, and I am the only non-family employee and beer pourer of the Farmhouse Brewery. There's the Barn Burner, which is probably our most popular dark beer. It's an oaked Belgian double, delicious. Um, Marty was working on that earlier this year, and just the yeast wasn't working out, and it just was not fermenting right. It just came out as a brown ale, which was rather plain in Marty's opinion. And he's like, I, I just, I don't know what to do with this. I think I'm going to dump it. And Natalie said, no, you cannot do this. You cannot dump this giant uh, amount of beer. So Marty started experimenting with it, and that is how we got the beer, which we call Conflagration, which is a coffee coconut brown ale and was actually our best seller for the entire month that we released it. And our fans go nuts for it. And just put more shit in it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You just put more yeah, it shit. Just, it you just, just fermented too clean. So we use a Belgian yeast for that. You just it. It just fermented too clean. There wasn't any flavor to it, so that's why I needed to just add some flavor to it. And that's... We had... Coffee, and then it was kind of like, meh, it's just a coffee beer. So we added coconut and that. I do like that you have a story behind every beer. That's it. So what, tell, tell me about blind alpaca. Uh, he's like not blind, one. it's just that he can't see. Okay, so this this particular beer is one of my favorite stories. And you still, um, you're doing stand-up on Monday nights in the <laughs> tasting room. <laughs> Hosted by Natalie. I was at my, I name a lot of our beers, and I was at my friend's uh, farm and I was visiting the little baby sheep and you know I was down on my knees facing the sheep and I stand up and there's alpaca this the alpaca and he's right here in my face you know and my friend said he's not blind it's just that he can't see and he has all the hair over his eyes uh, yeah all the hair over his eyes and you know he's he just just can't see you and I thought, oh, my God, that's got to be a beer name. I really like this porter, Blind Alpaca. Yeah. Maybe that's a New York style, a New York porter. <laughs> yeah. We want to flush that out. It's like, you know, you're, you're, I think by definitely by malting your own, you're at an advantage. You're, you're getting consistency. I, li I like your style. Some brewers, like, every beer is a totally different beer, and it could be made by someone else. Other brewers have, like, their, it feels like their house style. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the ones that do better have a house style. What is our house style? It'd be our malt. I mean, people have said that they've tasted it. What's the common flavor between everything? And it's, it's we have the same base malt in everything. So where some breweries do use, you know, Belgian malt in their Belgian beers and Marisada in their English beers, we have the same base malt for everything. You're, so in one sense, you're becoming maybe the future in New York, where you're you're malting and brewing, which most most guys aren't. Correct. Yeah, it's it's very so labor intensive. I feel like you, you do have one thing. You know, you have a lot of different styles here. 
but I do feel like I'm getting a sense of what your beers are. They're definitely not too hoppy. Mm-hmm. It feels like the, the malt, it's very balanced. And uh, those are good things. Yeah. <laughs> so I, can, I, I think that this, maybe this is what we're discovering, is that, that being a maltster and a brewer might, might be the future, might, might be raising standards that other, other brewers might want to emulate. We're going to go next uh, <laughs> nearby Ithaca to uh, Thor Eschner's. Farm, talk about grains. Tell him I said hi. And that's where we're going now. I will. Okay. Sure will. All right. Rock on, guys. This is it. Same. Orange canoe. <laughs> How are you, man? Good to see you. We got a beer, too. Yeah, yeah. Good to, Good to see, see you, man. man. Yeah, thanks for coming. We just came from Farmhouse Brewery in Owego, and uh, Natalie says hi. Oh, good, good, good. I love Natalie. She's awesome. How are they doing down there And good They're old great. Owego? We, we brought your growler of beer, some porn. Ah, beautiful. So we're definitely going to be drinking. That's one thing when we do the show, you know, we've got to have the lubrication. We went to visit Tor Eschner at his farm where he grows grains. Tor had a group of friends with him. Mark Oakes, a private crop consultant who works with about 200 different farms, Aaron McLeod, who tests grains and provides valuable data on their specifications, and Amy Halloran, a grains writer who understands why so many people have to be involved with grains. Grains are the last leg of the locavore mile, and it's going to take a lot. Like a mar- It's a marathon. Building up all the pieces is really tough. You guys, you've been in training a long time. Aaron is here to put us in training for the what we need to do for specs. People like Mark Oaks coming on to, to help get the growers in on it. We're out here, and, you know, I've known you guys, Amy and, and, and Tor, for a couple of years and through regional grains and, and you know, you know, beyond milling to, to malting and, and beer. So we're going to kind of talk about the intersection of, you know, what you're doing here. We're coming back to the roots. Yeah, this is you the know, beginning right here. This is it. Yeah, without without the without the farm, there is no beer. So, you know, the old bumper sticker, no farms, no beers, it, it holds true. And we're going to walk around and see, you know, everything that's involved in, you know, producing grain that is of a quality that can be malted into beer. So this is the house where we keep the the workers chained to the floors. No. <laughs> they hand peel the grain out of the heads. It's a laborious task. But uh, so this, this feels like an enterprise. You know, one thing di- di- it feels like different parts of the state because we're going to different regions in New York. You know, there's like some of them feel like the agriculture is done. But one thing about up here around the Finger Lakes, which also find like back to the roots, the identity of what the Finger Lakes is. It feels like things are alive. You see kids outside, you see livestock. Yeah. And this is a working enterprise here. Tell oh, us yeah. like what we see, because this is not just like a field of grain. No, I mean, no. this is a so, working enterprise. Yeah, Garages, so we're, equipment. Yeah, we're, we're at the, you know, the basically the base. This is our home farm. This is where Rachel and I live. And this is where all the facilities that support uh, the grain operation. We have 1,200 acres of tillable land where we're growing grain, which is spread out from our base in Newfield, uh, basically 20 miles in a circle. So lots of different fields, but all the 
grain processing, grain storage all happens here at the home farm in Newfield. It's not just a, a rolling field, it's a working enterprise. You got a tractor going by, uh, uh, <laughs> all these silos. Why don't you tell us what all these things are and try to describe them yeah, to our listeners? So, kind of uh, all around us, there's uh, these large cylindrical vessels that hold um, anywhere, all different sizes that we put different grains in. And they're made of corrugated steel. They have a roof. We pour the grain in through the top. And then the grain sits on a perforated floor. Uh, so in order to store the grain for a long time, we need to be able to uh, push air through it to keep its temperature uh, um, and uh, moisture at the right level to store because sometimes we're storing grain for up to two years. Um, so the bins are built to a, keep the grain off the ground so it doesn't get wet or get moldy and to allow us to be able to, in the winter, cool the grain down or in the summer, warm the grain up uh, so that there isn't condensation, molds off flavors, uh, things like that. So, you know, each bin has a different type of grain. Uh, that one there has soft white winter wheat. The next one has rye. The one after that has a wheat mix for our flour mill. The one after next to that has hard red winter wheat, which is a bread wheat. And I think you should point out, Tor, when I first came here, there weren't that many bins, but there were more than your average farm. And you certainly transitioned as you went from dairy to feed grade, that is, to food grade and beer stuff, you needed more bins. Yeah. So this is maybe a really important thing to point out is how much infrastructure you had to add, you had to, add to make your farm serve and spoon feed, if yeah, you will, yeah. all these grain right. markets. And all these, you know, s small micro malt houses and micro distilleries, they None of them have storage, so I need to be able to basically, as Amy said, spoon feed them grain a couple tons at a time, which means I have to always have grain on hand. I have to be able to process it, package it, and uh, we'll go look at those in these one-ton totes that can be shipped via truck into New York City or wherever it is. And so this was all a learning curve that I had to get onto to transition from selling tractor-trailer loads to selling it by the ton cleaned, ready to malt, ready to grind for distilling or flour or whatever that might be. A spoonful <laughs> is a ton. Yeah, our spoonful is one ton. Yeah. Not too long ago, even a few years ago, people said, oh, New York could never make, make grains for beer. It wasn't good enough. People weren't really interested. You know, what's changed about that? And also what, you know, are, are you guys each doing with the grains that, that you know, intersect with beer. So I'm Aaron and I'm and, and and I'm a grain quality chemist and I'm the director of the Hartwick College Center for Craft Food and Beverage which was established really to help us select and pick out which are going to be the grains that get into these different markets because the needs are so specific and one thing Mark said earlier was this is this is a breadbasket of a country at one time in history. And so this can certainly be done. But we haven't done it for so long. For a hundred years we kind of forgot how. And so what we're doing today is rebuilding the knowledge. You know, Tor was very early in doing this work. And so what we have to do is we have to get back out there. We have to get farmers, you know, trying it, growing these grains like malting barley for beer and learning how to do it all over again. And we have to access all the infrastructure and tools and, and resources and modern technology that we can put into this to make sure that they're able to be successful. 
I'm Mark Oaks. I'm a, uh, an agronomist, a crop consultant here in upstate New York. And the excitement for me is the opportunity for these farms to grow things for a higher value market. And we've got a skill, a farming skill set here that is unequaled. It's very challenging to farm in upstate New York. Very diverse soil types, incredible uh, climate challenges. And if we can develop some crops through uh, some local research to know these will really work in some specialty markets, we've got a great opportunity to, to really bring back some high-value options for New York State agriculture. You know, as a farmer, you're a jack-of-all-trades. I have to be a repairman and an agronomist and a machinery operator and a marketer and a processor. It's nice to have someone like Mark who's a specialist that when you have a problem, you call that person up and they can give you some, even settle your nerves by telling you, okay, it, it, don't worry about it, it's this, or worry about it, we got to do this to save it. So I want to point out the really exciting thing about all these conversations is the amount of collaboration it takes to make grains happen again. So do, do you think that's something special about the Finger Lakes, that the resources here? No, I think it's special about grains. I think that they demand more collaboration from us. If you look at the history of agriculture, grain growing, or especially wheat growing, takes us all together because you have to have so many tools and processes and transformations before it comes. If you're going from field to loaf, you have to have a farmer, a miller, and a baker, three separate things. If you're going from field to beer... You have to have a farmer, a maltster, and a brewer. You need to have all these layers. You want to comment on that? On like what, what you feel about like the agricultural like work that's happening and the economy around here in the Finger Lakes? I mean, I think that, that this area has a long history, right? The farm wineries really transformed the, the economy of the Finger Lakes, what, 40 years ago? And, and the governor decided that beer could be a same thing. You know, beer could also be a driver for an agricultural economy and, 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 and pick it up and, and make, make a living for people and, and a great living at that. Yeah, and I, I got particularly, you know, I can't take any credit for this. I got really lucky in that I had the idea I was going to start a flour milling operation uh, right before this whole craft distilling and craft brewing uh, legislation went through. So I just, by pure luck, was already set up and in the mindset to grow food-grade grains and have the processing equipment to clean it to a point where it could be used by a malt house or a distillery when that started to get going. So I sort of, I got in on the ground floor uh, as someone who had a little bit of knowledge in that. And that was very helpful to my both my farm operation and my flour milling operation. You know, another thing to think about, because I grow so many different things, like this year we had a horrible drought, but if you grow enough stuff, and every year I have some crop that does really bad and other crops that do really good because weather alone dictating that. But the diversity of what I grow always lets me have a few crops that are doing all right, no matter what the weather is. And you're going to have a couple of losers. But if you're just growing corn and soybeans, you're taking a huge risk. Uh, basically, now we're, we're walking uh, by, this is the repair shop, um, and then next to the workshop, um, we have a, a wooden barn with a big cupola. 
that's uh, fairly tall with two big uh, uh, wide open doors. And inside here is where we process the grain. So the grain is uh, harvested in the field, uh, brought into the farm, and then uh, we can go look at the machine that we dry the grain with if it's not its storable moisture. In order to keep in the storage bin, uh, wheat or rye or barley needs to be, I like to have it about 13%. Aaron, would you concur? Is that a good moisture? That's right. And the reason that storage is so important is because we harvest the entire crop at one time of year. But we have to make the beer all year long. Right. So we have to store these grains um, and these ingredients. And so the storage conditions are really important. So the, the bins he described with the false bottom so we can move air, you know, keep the grain fresh. That's so critical. So we're inside uh, the, we call this the seed cleaning barn. Um, and we have a tank, a self-unloading tank that um, the grain would come from the bin and go through. It's a long tube that has a... One of this Cornell class came in, this very smart young guy said, oh, that's an Archimedes screw, which I have never heard an auger called an Archimedes screw, but he's right. It's a big, it's a shaft with like a screw in it that moves the grain from A to B and it can move it up. We can fire it up. I'm going to, let me. Um, I bet you never knew that it took so much work to make this pint of beer. So we're going to, I'm going to put a little grain through this and we're going to, yeah, why don't you put that under it? We'll throw a little bit of grain through it. We're going to flick the switch, and you can hear the hum of the machine in the background. Then it's going to get real. That's the auger. This is the clean grain coming out of the bottom of the machine. And you can see here, these are all the, this is all the weed seeds and everything else come out of here. That was amazing. <laughs> I mean, so you're saying the technology stopped at 1900 and well, you know, they, they've, they've improved on it, but, like, the basic concept is very much the same, you know? So this is, this is the, the tote bag that they're stored in, and you can see here's the, here's the warthog wheat, and that's, that's, that's ready to go to the malt house right now. So um, it's all, it's a nice sort of light red color. You'll see uh, there's kind of... Uh, Two different color kernels in there, One, ones that are a little bit lighter um, and other ones that we call vitreous kernels, which are a little bit darker. And those tend to be a little bit harder and a little bit higher in protein than the lighter ones. And that um, high protein is what, in wheat is what gives the, the wheat beers that, that great you know, foam, that great foam stability. Foam is made out of wheat and sometimes that haze you know, that's common mm -hmm. in the, in the Hefe styles, yeah. the Hefeweizen styles, you know, there's a lot of protein and that contributes, you know, those qualities that we appreciate in a wheat beer, along with that great grainy, you know, character and flavor. Mm -hmm. And Tor, I feel like you're really at the top of your game, especially seeing your sorted, dried and sorted grain. I've been to some malt facilities where in the malt house, they're sorting 
through their, their grain and their stones and everything. Right, right. Yeah, so I'm selling a product that's ready to go. And I think a lot of uh, most farms are not set up the way I'm set up. And as I said, this was a matter of me getting into uh, the flour industry with my little tiny flour mill and having to take grain and turn it into a food grade product. But what an incredible opportunity that is for brewers to be able to brew with these ingredients that they amber malted corn, roasted rye, triticale, spelt. These have incredible flavors, you know, and, and malting has not been a very innovative industry, you know, in the last, you know, you know, 100 years. You know, yeah. the big manufacturing companies out west make malt and sell it by the trainload. And these and, and what, what farmers like Tor and, and the craft malters are able to do is be creative, mm. experiment, and through that creative experimentation, find gems, wonderful products that are exciting. And it must be great for brewers to try to use these things and create brand new flavors that we've never had before. It's incredibly exciting. Yeah, it is. It's really fun. And it's, you know, it's super gratifying for me as a farmer, like to be able to go to Brewer's Choice and walk down this aisle of breweries and see, oh, that's got my rye in it or that's got my wheat in it. You can't even imagine how much that adds to what I do every day here. Hey, let's walk around. Let's, let's okay. check out the silos too. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to open the door in the side of this and uh, walk. We can all climb in. There's a lot of signs that say warning. Yeah, yeah, we don't have all to worry. Equipment. So yeah, we can all go in here and have a look. You can see what the floor looks like and what the stirring system looks like. I don't know if I can make it in there, guys. It's kind of claustrophobic. I mean, this is basically what, if this were full of grain, I opened the door, it would all fall out on me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why the warning signs. And so, yeah, we're inside the bin and, and uh, we're standing on... Uh, what's called a drying floor. And underneath the drying floor, the, it's a, a, a perforated metal with small, like maybe three millimeter holes in it. And we're looking at, in the center of it, the stirring machine, uh, which blends the grain together. It's basically a, yeah, gigantic, the biggest KitchenAid ever made. Yeah. So. Oh, <laughs> Either we, I want to turn on some, some machinery and, and mix something up, or I want to go get a beer. All right, let's go get Come a beer. On. You know, it's, it's amazing being up here. We, we got to turn on some machinery, of which I, I, I am scared now because there's, <laughs> there's all these augers and, and moving and sharp edges and yeah. things. You know, you forget life on a farm can be very dangerous. Yeah. And, uh, You're lucky if you get through it with a complete set of fingers, which <laughs> I, so far I've got them all. But I, I, want, I want the end result. You know, I'm, I'm the lazy New Yorker. You guys do all the work. Let's go inside. We're, we're going to eat you out of yeah, house and yeah, home. Yeah. So here we are at a Black Duck Cidery, Daring Drake Farm in Ovid, New York. It means a lot to me being here, uh, you know, with all those cider weeks in New York City and Finger Lakes. Uh, John and Shannon Reynolds uh, have made an effort to come down to the city and, and they're selling regularly to places like Wasail and Jimmy's Number 43, uh, despite being over four hours away. And we're going to try to learn a little bit more about, you know, why they're making cider up here in wine country in the Finger Lakes and, and the background that. John Reynolds has. I know for over 20 years he worked with apples in New York State. 
So it's just like a, another simple working operation. You know, there's barns, there's little tractors, there's, there's bins and crates sitting out. And, you know, th there's a lot of work that goes into making these great New York State craft beverages. So we're going to meet the guys from uh, Black, Black Duck and uh, walk around. All right. Here comes John. We're standing at his tasting room uh, right off of the highway. I don't know if it's really a highway up here in Ovid, New York. He's driving in. We got his cat playing with us. This is the friendliest wildcat you ever met. And we're going to find out a little bit more about uh, what he's doing up here. I'm making what I think is some of the best cider in New York State. He's got a backstory to tell us. So it's going to be a lively crew. Hey, John, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you, Jimmy? Good to see you, buddy. So uh, I'm John Reynolds, uh, and it's uh, Black Duck Cidery, and uh, it's also Darien Drake Pharma. We sell fresh fruit and duck eggs. My name's Edun, and I help pressing and picking drops up. The apples that fall on the ground, when we pick them up and to press them, that's what I help with. Her, her name's Pippin. She, she, she mumbled it, but uh, Pippin. So, you know, which is, which is wild apple seedling. So, uh, yeah, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if she'll love it or hate it when she's a teenager, but whatever, she's... <laughs> hey, Shannon. That's the, real, that's the real boss. That's the owner. Uh, Shannon O'Connor. I'm the co-owner of Daring Drake Farm and Black Duck Cidery. And what are some of the, the tasks that you do around here? Because I know it takes both of you to run this place. Oh, I do all the grunt work. I do all the, you know, the planting, the weeding, the harvesting. I like doing the physical work. And then I have to do all the back end, the bookkeeping and the boring record keeping stuff. It took us a few years, you know, to save up the money to actually buy the initial land to start planting. And then we planted everything ourselves. I remember using a wheelbarrow to mulch all the trees by hand. What was that, like a ton of mulch? That was multiple tons. It was probably like 10 tons. First started making cider by, you know, just using a dish disposal to grind everything. And we built our own hand press. And we were out there, you know, in the rain, in the cold, just pressing by hand all these apples to actually get started. And actually, the orchard she's talking about is not the orchard we're standing on. So we have two, two orchards. We have one three miles down the road. And that, that's the original older orchard. This orchard's all been uh, planted within five, the last five years. But, John, you know, one, one big reason you know, we're up here to kind of represent what's going on in, in Finger Lakes. And we identified a top grain farmer a maltster and brewer, and for you, you're, you're our cider maker. Okay. You know, so let's let's get some backstory on you. You told me that you worked at Cornell, and you did research. You, you went around the state for a number of years. Tell us about that work, and then, you know, some of the things you learned, different apple varieties in the state. Yeah. I mean, I did, I actually attended Cornell as a student, and then was employed there afterwards as a uh, lab technician or field technician. Uh, one of the useful things when I worked at Cornell was I got to see a couple thousand varieties growing here in the Finger Lakes and, and sort of evaluate them whether I wanted to grow them or not because I got to see them live in the, in the orchard, not just read descriptions in a catalog. People think of Finger Lakes as, as wine. And, you know, we've seen what's happened with the Cider Weeks and, and that movement. So to me, I think of this area as cider. Why are you doing cider here? I mean, the reason I choose apples and pears over uh, grapes is, uh, you know, and no offense to the, to the wine folk out there, but, but wines are weeds and they kill trees. Uh, trees are noble. Uh, they're beautiful and they're majestic. Uh, but, but really, grapes really are. They're, they're, they're just a weedy vine that strangles and kills trees. Uh, so, you know, 
that that really is sort of it in a nutshell. I think that apples and pears are more beautiful just as a plant uh, to, than grapes. And, and this is coming from someone that did work in the grape industry here in the Finger Lakes. But no, and I, I've always liked cider better as a beverage than wine. And I love I love wine. I love Finger Lakes wine, at least like Rieslings and Gewurz. But I think that cider can be as complex and as interesting as wines. But at half the alcohol... It's it to me then it's a sessionable drink and that's that's what I like about it the fact that it can be this complex, uh, beautiful drink made from fruit but but that I can actually like spend the whole night drinking it where wine it's not going to happen I mean at some point I'm going to be under the table, uh, laying on the ground. So tell us about what you've planted. So this is where you're you're choosing these cider varieties. Yeah. You know, tell us what you're doing here because it's... Yeah. So, so, I mean, most of these trees that, that uh, the, the, the freestanders here, that, that are, they're not going to be trellised. Most of those are technically actually American heirlooms. But yeah, most of these are, were selected, you know, for their fermentation quality, like we're going to grow them. And, uh, um, you know, like, like, like this, you know, these are Newtown Pippins in here. You know, it is dual purpose. I mean, it's a great eating apple. It's a good baking apple. But uh, I think it makes a really good uh, cider. Let's tell us yeah. about this tree. This is a yeah. This, something this, is a, this, a, this one different. actually is a little experimental tree, and it's a, uh, it is like actually a true cider apple. And this one needs staked up because you can see it's starting to lean. It it got fruit, and I shouldn't have let it fruit this year. Um, this is younger than than the trees next door. This is two years younger, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's got it, it's definitely going to get a stake to pull it back up and go straight. You know. It looks like a, a toy tree, something that you planted just for your kids oh. so they can come and pick their own apples and Yeah, and this is actually like a true cider apple, but it's a true cider apple that 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 uh that we found in the national forest. So this is uh, unnamed. Like varieties that we have that we can harvest. We probably between the two farms have 80 varieties of apples, but then there's probably another 50 apple varieties that are that are we're growing to see whether we want to keep growing them. John and Shannon graft a lot of their apple trees from those in the Finger Lakes National Forest. Some of the land in the forest was from homesteads, and those homesteads had orchards. And some of those orchards still exist, and, and I have gotten budwood from some of the trees that were left from these homesteads. Uh, those trees still exist up there, some of those big, gnarled standard trees, 150 years old, easy. And, um, but, but, but these seedlings escaped, and so they're all over the hedgerows, um, everywhere up there. And I've just spent, uh, since we've moved to the Finger Lakes, countless hours in the forest like we hike we've hiked around especially pre like the kids because we always had farm dogs and so we would take them up there a lot of times and hike and and eventually you hit on something and you're like oh there it is uh and you look at the tree and it's like this tree looks good you know you start coming back i never take budwood usually right away i come back a year or two and it's like oh look this sets fruit every year it is, you know, uh, you know, this this pear is like sending fruit. It's it's uh, got tannins. It's got acid. This is like a true peri pear. I mean, it's not. It's a wild tree. It's not an English or a French cultivar, but it's equal to them in in in, in its uh, composition, in its flavor, and uh, it's probably better because it's more productive. Yeah. So tell me about this this the tasting room and what you guys are doing here. Right. The cider room is. Uh, probably small by uh, most folks' standards. I don't know. Um, 
but but for us it's it's whatever because essentially about a quarter of it uh, and the one corner is like sort of taken out and that's like quote unquote the tasting room uh, although it's all essentially one big room there's a little bit of a, a wall divider uh, b- between part of it but but basically uh, I will say when people come in to taste for the first time they are they are always they usually really really like it because it's totally different than, than any of the other tasting rooms because they're like oh this is where you do everything and I'm like yeah no there's no way I can hide anything so sort of like in a, here it's a wood frame building with yeah. a little yeah, metal it's a top wood frame yeah it's got metal and and, and uh, uh, essentially there's metal stainless tanks and some wood oak barrels uh, here and then and then I have this this old 1960s this is a grinder it's a hammer mill and I actually just use a basket press which is a uh, you know not typical of most apple orchards they would use a rack and cloth press but it's all very labor intensive because, you know, each apple, uh, you know, we, we, we put them in a dunk tank, we clean the apples, rinse them, and then each one's scooped out with an egg basket. It's a, essentially a metal wire basket. And then we, we dump them into the top of the, uh, uh, of the grinder here. Um, they grind through. When we fill up a tub, we move it away. We put another tub in, we fill it up. So each apple is touched multiple times, basically. So uh, Shannon just poured for us the black duck cidery, dry cider, bottle condition. It's got a little s- sparkle in it. John? Yeah, no, and it's, um, I mean, it is like, it's, it's a flagship one, and it's it's much more savory than, than some of the other stuff that, that, that uh, like the woody and the crabby pip that, that we can probably taste here. Yeah, no, this one's the woody. It is a, uh, we fermented and aged this in a neutral Hungarian oak barrel. So there is like a little bit of oak to the profile in it. This one's very complex, very lightly carbonated. I think it's definitely John's favorite. Well, it's just been my favorite, like like, like just straight up drink. Uh, yeah, people are excited about, about the savoriness of it. They, are, they appreciate the dryness of it. And that's not for everyone. Some people do want more of a sweeter cider, and, so, and that's fine. But at least they've tried it, and they know that other ciders exist out there. Uh, we also make the dry hop cider, which uh, we like to give to typical beer drinkers because it does have more of a sour beer characteristic. We call it our gateway drink to try to lure them into the cider world. Well, we love it because we're outside. We're connected with the land. The kids are growing up being connected to the land. We have a sense of community, especially... Um, and the style of work we do, I mean, people come in and out. We get to meet different people. People come in and help. And you can see this connection to the land in John and Shannon's daughters, Idun and Pippin. It tastes like red. This one is actually sweeter. This one actually has some of our apples look just like the gold. I, like gold. I have one to bite. And I have one to bite. Sure. Well, I like I do like picking off the trees, and when we shake them out when we're in the National Forest and even around here, when we shake out the bigger trees, we stand in there and we just shake them, and the apples fall on the ground and we pick them up. I love doing that, and I like helping press the apples. I can't, me and my sister can't do grinding because it's really loud. It could probably, if we did it too many times, I could go deaf. My, me and my sister could go deaf, it's so loud. That's why my dad and his and our worker Vanessa wear headphones when they do it, mm-hmm. like tractor headphones. It's really, it's really loud. We have to stay outside. 
two things I want to say. One, just about our experience in Finger Lakes. You're actually kind of our typical interviewee up here because both at Farmhouse Brewery, you know, Natalie and, and Marty, they kind of learned from scratch. They learned how to malt and then from that to brew. And they're just kind of very growing it on their own with their, their hard work. And also Tor Eschner, our grain farmer, you know, he started the same way too, growing small and, and learning how to mill and everything. So that seems to be the character of the region, of, of the people we're talking to that we're really interested in more than big wineries and, and, and tourism. But my last question, because for you as the guy who seems to think a lot about what you're growing and what is mind-altering, you know, everyone has some kind of origin of fermentation story. And I don't want to hear about what you think from science, but in your mind, you have an, an origin fantasy of like the first time humans had a fermented beverage. Yeah. I bet you have a couple stories that you've imagined. You know, it's it's probably like in the in the basic sense, like very simple. Like I mean, because if you let, especially like hard palm fruits, not so much grapes, but like just drop, they they ferment. I mean, on the ground, whether it's an apple or a pear, and like I have to believe that people just came along, just like like black bears. I mean, in the Caucasus or in these places where apples are are native to the, the, these wild regions in the Tian Shan Mountains, uh, you know, black the, the, these bears roam there and they they just relish these fermented dropped apples. Uh, so I mean, I have to believe like humans, it was the same thing. I don't know. I mean, I've always loved plants ever since I like I was a kid, and 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 there was. Like a built-in obsession with apples. Like I, I remember going with my dad to pick apples. Uh, like, like he literally was an apple picker. You know, like, like in 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 uh, South Central Central PA, he did that. Like, uh, he was a factory worker, and he on his hours off, he he picked apples for extra money during harvest season. And I just remember, like, I I was in charge of picking drops, and and this was like as a very little kid, like maybe five and on, like like for many years, uh, and just picking the drops like up. I I just I just loved that whole aspect of it in apples. I mean, people always ask, like, <clears throat> what else would you do if you couldn't make cider? And <clears throat> it's truthful. Like, if I couldn't make cider, I, I <clears throat> if I lived in a, you know, I would move to Colorado or California or Washington and I'd grow marijuana. I mean, it's true. The, the, the one thing that's always been, like, my passion throughout life is plants and mind-altering plants. So... I love plants that, that change your perception. And, and to me, uh, alcohol is great. Like, it should be complex and interesting when you drink it. But in the end, alcohol gets you drunk and makes you feel good. Or at least it should. And if it doesn't make you feel good, you should just stop drinking it. We came up here, we checked out grain growers and malts, malters and breweries. And uh, we're going to, I know it's Cider Week Finger Lakes. We're going to hit up uh, the Finger Lake Cider House tonight. I know they've got uh, Autumn from Eve Cidery doing a tasting. And John Bunker, the crazy Maine uh, apple tree guy. My name is Melissa Madden. Welcome to the Finger Lake Cider House. So we are a farm, which you saw when you came in. So we're a very diversified small farm, and we're making orchard cider. And we want to be a place where people can come taste true orchard cider. So we feature our cider, Good Life Cider, and four other cideries. Eve Cidery, Redbird Orchard, Black Diamond Cider, and South Hill Cider. Here we are up in, is it closing out our, our weekend here in uh, Finger Lakes? We got I have two of my favorite New York cider makers. We got 
Uh, Autumn from Eve Cidery and Eric from Redbird. My name is Autumn Stoshek, and uh, my husband and I own Eve Cidery in Manhattan, New York. Uh, my name is Eric Schatt. Uh, Deva, my wife, and I run Redbird Cider in Burdett, New York. Yeah, so guys, you know, one thing we're experiencing up here, we got to come up and check out the Finger Lakes. We visited maltsters, brewers, grain farmers, and cider makers. And I think that Finger Lakes is like, we're going back to the roots. This is a place where all those things, people are kind of from the ground up, kind of like craft makers, doing things with great ingredients that no one else is doing in the state. So guys, I want to talk about what do you think about what you're doing and what this region means to, to you and to New York State for uh, craft beverages? Um, earlier in our history, when people lived off the land, spent time outside, made their livelihood on small farms, they had the sort of knowledge and inspiration and foresight to notice when they found a wild apple seedling um, that it had really great qualities, whether they were great qualities for making pie or eating out of hand or storing all winter or making cider, which at that time was America's favorite beverage. And um, there was a time <laughs> in the history of the Northeast when hundreds and hundreds of these varieties were named and uh, grown pretty locally um, and We've sort of lost that history, but New York State, along with Massachusetts, was an epicenter of this this naming um, of of these sort of what we call heirloom varieties. And one of the things that's really cool is that a lot of these heirloom varieties, as it turns out, have great cider making qualities. And so I think it's kind of um, I, I don't know if that's the reason there's a resurgence in orchard-based cider making here in the Finger Lakes, but it's certainly very fitting um, that it's happening here. Eric, same kind of thing. You know, you're, you're here in this, whatever, traditional apple agricultural region. What's special about it? You know, why should we be thinking about Finger Lakes ciders? When we're here at this current, you know, period in time, getting into cider, bringing cider to people, for a lot of people around here, it's pretty obvious that, that this is something that's that's worth doing so it's it's cool to think about um there's many other places in the country in the world that that appreciate you know craft or artistic food products so i think it's it's important for us that we have that support and that's that's kind of a you know reflection of the the folks around here i just want to say what's been so cool is we came up to finger lakes to check out the craft beverage scene, and we got invited to come to Finger Lakes Cider House tonight, and it happens to be the, the Cider Week Finger Lakes. And John Bunker's here from Maine to us as the, the Apple Whisperer. You come over, John, and you gave a great talk to say a few words. My name is John Bunker, and uh, I live in Maine. I have an orchard, and I run a company called Fedco Trees, and, uh, and I'm very involved in the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. I'm past president of the board of directors. So, John, you know, why do you think that cider is not as popular as beer when it once was more popular than beer? Uh, well, th there are some people who think that um, that the beer companies, uh, as the as prohibition ended in the 30s, um, that the beer companies did what they could to make sure that cider did not come back through ta through different kinds of taxes and regulations. And, um, and there is also, to me, 
the thought that that the beauty of making out of making cider is that is that it has one ingredient and the one ingredient is the apple and and you can grow them yourselves you can collect them yourselves you can find them by the side of the road whatever it is but but this is something that anyone can do and uh, and as and as i was saying earlier it is uh, not dissimilar to to my you know occasional wondering of why did marijuana become illegal and um, something that is basically an innocuous substance um, that was um, that could be grown by anyone the weed and uh, and was uh, somehow some way turned into a um, an evil product and made illegal and ruined the lives of many people when in fact all it was 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 an herb that was growing everywhere. This is something, you know, a lot of people think, oh, like, I have an orchard, I have all these, you know, reject apples, you know, from my Fuji's or whatever, and I'll make a value-added product and I'll turn it into cider, and that's what cider is. And um, I think that the reason that we make cider does have to do with the fact that um, it's alcohol and it brings people together in a way... um, a sort of conviviality that sort of makes being human and being alive um, a lot more meaningful. And when you can make a really, really good cider, just like when you make a really, really, really good wine in that convivial space, it can, those aromas and those flavors, you, you, you smell your grandmother's apple pie. You, you remember the way that your mother's kitchen was when you were growing up. And those things sort of, those, those emotional memories bring so much meaning to your life. And so that's one of the reasons why we make cider for that sort of mind-altering experience. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio. If you want to visit the Finger Lakes region and the craft beverage makers profiled in this radio special, check out the Escape Maker package on heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks to the craft beverage producers we met in this episode, Marty and Natalie Matrazo and Ken Bowman of the Farmhouse Brewery, Tor Eschner of Eschner Farms, and grain experts Amy Halloran, Mark Oakes, and Aaron McLeod. John Shannon, Edun, and Pippin Reynolds of Black Duck Cider. Melissa Madden of the Finger Lake Cider House. Autumn Stoshek of Eve Cidery. Eric Schatt of Redbird Cider and John Bunker of Fedco Trees. This episode was hosted by me, Jimmy Carboni. It was produced and recorded by Caitlin Pierce with help from Harry Huggins. The episode was engineered, mixed, and scored by David Tadashore with editorial oversight by Aaron Fairbanks, all for the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>